everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to It's All About Food. Thanks for joining me today. We're going to be talking about a hot topic. Excuse my puns. I will be probably throwing them in a lot today. But I am here with Dr. Shilpa Ravella, who is the author of a new book, Silent Fire. Shilpa Ravella is a gastroenterologist with expertise in nutrition and an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, New York Magazine, Slate, and USA Today, among other publications. She lives in New York City. Welcome to It's All About Food. Thank you so much, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I love reading books by medical doctors who know something about nutrition. And for a long time, mm, there weren't many. I think fortunately, there are more and more medical doctors that are interested in nutrition. And I, I think we're we're learning that there's a movement to get nutrition questions on the medical exam so that nutrition will be taught in medical schools, but it's a work in progress. I'm just glad that you are interested in nutrition. Thank you so much. And yes, I think hopefully one day we will see some nutrition questions on, on, on the medical exams. It's an important part of practice for any physician. I know that when I went to look for a primary care physician in New York City, my requirement amongst the information that was available in the networks that I was looking in was somebody that was interested in preventative medicine. That's and a nutrition is a big part of that. Absolutely. Completely agree. Okay. So your expertise as a gastroenterologist, you're involved with the gut. And we're learning more and more how nutrition plays a big part. Surprise. Uh, you wrote this book, and I think anyone that reads this book will know that you are a very good writer and storyteller. Oh, thank you so much. My question is, who is this book for? I think the book really is for anyone who wants to garner a deeper understanding of inflammation. I feel like it's a word that has been around for a very long time. We've been talking about inflammation and anti-inflammatory diets for probably decades or even more. And I think, I think the book is for anyone who really wants to understand these topics and also understand them in a historical context and empower themselves to take control of their own health. As I said, this is a hot topic. So any, the, anything related to the gut is a hot topic. And your book is about inflammation which we're discovering is like a significant cause of most chronic diseases today. So can you tell me just brief, 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 because we have a lot to talk about what inflammation is and a little of its history? Sure. Well, inflammation is actually an ancestral force. It evolved to fight things like pathogens and poisons and traumas, all of these things that ancient human beings routinely succumb to. So for example, when you stub your toe and you see redness, heat, swelling, and pain, those are the cardinal signs of inflammation that the ancients saw and recorded. And those are the manifestations of a variety of things going on in your body, like blood flow increasing, fluid and protein leaking out of blood vessels, immune cells rushing to the area to help heal the trauma. 
So, so that's acute inflammation. And what we're finding now is that inflammation also has a price, a biological price, uh, so to speak. And this means that we've evolved this robust inflammatory response, but it can also harm our own bodies in certain ways. And we're familiar with autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis, where we have inflamed joints, and uh, lupus, for example, where we have skin rashes or inflammatory bowel disease, where patients come in with a variety of GI complaints. And those are autoimmune disorders that we are familiar with in which inflammation plays a part, chronic inflammation. And more recently in the medical literature, there's been this emerging idea of hidden inflammation or low-level chronic inflammation. And the salient unifying thread, this type of inflammation, is that we are not routinely used to diagnosing or treating this type of inflammation. And it is a type of inflammation that's associated with our most pressing chronic disorders today, including heart disease, cancer, obesity, diabetes, neurodegenerative disorders. So it affects uh, the majority of Americans, I would say. Mm. I always like to do twists on funny lines and I'm thinking, are you good inflammation or are you bad inflammation? (laughs) (laughs) Because inflammation serves a purpose, but as you've explained, it can really get out of control and be very problematic. Exactly. Now, Now, what's wonderful about your book is the storytelling and the history. And uh, really quite fascinating to read how we've gotten to where we are today. And I know that today is going to change quite a bit from tomorrow because we're constantly learning. But it's really fascinating to read about scientists and doctors who come up with these ideas and especially 100, 200, how many years ago when we didn't have the tools that we have today, how they, yeah. how they came up with these ideas that some of them actually turned out to be on the right path. Absolutely. I think it's quite amazing, actually, how, how uh, prescient some of these scientists were in their own time. And in fact, when you look at Rudolf Virchow, who is a 19th century uh, physician, he was formulating some of his theories on inflammation at a time when we were still applying leeches to the skin as treatment and doing bloodletting and at, at a time when the humoral theory was was very popular. And, and, and this is a theory that told us that our bodies are dominated by a quartet of liquids called humors and any imbalance in these liquids was responsible for all disease. So, so that prevailed for quite some time, but Virchow was on the path to a better understanding inflammation. And he was really one of the first scientists to see inflammation in ways that had previously been unseen. The ancients were able to see the visible signs of inflammation, the signs visible to the naked eye, like the redness, heat, swelling, and pain. But Virchow dissected this a bit further and and he looked into the microscopic features of these visible signs. Why is there the redness, heat, swelling, and pain? And he was looking at the increased blood flow and the fluid and protein leaking out of the blood vessels and and the immune cells congregating in those areas. And he posited in his time, and this was in the 19th century, uh, the late, the mid 19th century, he he posited that inflammation, a low level inflammation was actually a cause of heart disease. And it it was a very strange and radical idea for the time. Uh, But now in uh, the 21st century, we are realizing that what he said 
and uh, many of his intuitions back then are actually are actually uh, bearing uh, credence in current day science. It makes you wonder, was he really just open-minded and brilliant and creative, or is there something that we know intuitively in our gut <laughs> or <Could> somewhere <laughs> about what's going on in our bodies? That's a great, yeah, it, it you know, I think in, intuition uh, definitely played a part, creativity as well, and and also, in some ways, I think today we are we are so siloed as as medical practitioners. We have various specialties, and medical knowledge is just expanding, so that we are specializing in 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 areas that are smaller and smaller. So this body of knowledge is expanding more rapidly than we can actually keep up with it in some ways. And I think I think it was really indeed amazing that these nineteenth century scientists were were able to formulate the theories that they did in their time. I remember reading something somewhere i can't remember where or when that's another song and that is that when something comes out in the scientific literature it takes like 17 years i remember the number 17 i don't know where they got that from for it to actually be accepted somehow in the general culture and i don't even know if that number is true because there's plenty of information that has come out and we're still not wanting to believe so this information that these people came up with, there's 200 years ago, even today, when somebody comes up with a novel theory, there's so much resistance. And I'm, I'm not sure why that is in science and in medicine. And I haven't been to medical school. I don't know if they, if they kind of teach you or trying to indoctrinate you a certain way in some sort of almost religious way to believe in whatever it is they're teaching so that when something new comes along it's considered you know blasphemy but we see this and we continue to see it uh, yeah i i completely agree and i i think uh you know a couple of things one with inflammation in in particular for for a very long time we understood it as a cause of the disease and i think part of the problem is that it is so omnipresent it is so pervasive it's a part of nearly every single disease that that we talk about there are just hundreds of syndromes inflammatory syndromes um, with uh, the worditis on the end tacked <laughs> to it so uh, nephritis inflammation of the kidneys you know uh, gastritis inflammation of the stomach and i could go on and on and so it is really just everywhere and so to to think of inflammation as an entity onto itself and to think of it as a cause of disease as opposed to simply being a consequence I think that that did take a long time and and that was a once radical idea and as you said some of these concepts that begin in basic science laboratories it, it takes quite some time for for human clinical trials to be performed and quite some time for uh, for uh, the ideas to to make their way into clinical practice and even onto prescription paths themselves so I, I think um, it is a long process in some ways. I think with the idea of inflammation as a cause of heart disease, that took about 30 years and uh, the life's work of devoted scientists and all of these scientists, you know, really have devoted their life's work to formulating a piece of the puzzle. And in concert, it's really when their work is taken as a whole, a new narrative emerges. And I think that's the other point too, is that we are all kind of staring at different pieces of an elephant say and we and we 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 are trying to see the bigger picture and it's really the work of these scientists that allowed us to see the bigger picture 
Well, I really appreciate you telling the story about some of them because it's important not only to give them credit, but to recognize the, the passion in their work, but also the bravery, the courage. Because when all of your colleagues are giving you a yeah. hard time <laughs> and you can't get your information published, it takes it takes a lot. Oh, that's very true. It takes a lot of faith in yourself and and then just to keep keep going and to keep struggling and to keep keep getting that funding. And and I think that was one of the things I wanted to show in in, in some of the chapters too, was just how protracted this process is and and how some of these folks really fought to to keep their ideas alive. I'm just going to mention a few of them. You, I don't know if I'm going to butcher their names, but you mentioned Mechnikov, Pasteur. We've we've all heard about Ehrlich and Virko. You mentioned before so many others, and then you briefly mentioned some of our current heroes, like mm -hmm. Dr. T. Colin Campbell and Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. Dr. T. Colin Campbell is a PhD scientist, and Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, of course, is a medical doctor. And they have both for decades been putting out information and seeing so much resistance. And that's current day. I agree. I think, you know, um, some of this information, as as we've spoken about, has has been there for, for quite some time. And people have been talking about food and health for a very, very long time. And even, even since Ansel Keys' time, and, and Ansel Keys was a nutrition scientist in the 1950s. And you know, intuitively on some level, we, we, we've known that there are certain patterns of food that foods that we should be eating and certain patterns of foods that we should be avoiding. But I think part of the problem has been that nutrition science historically has been, has been challenging to conduct and also challenging to interpret. So there's this idea that if we don't have, you know, dozens and dozens of randomized controlled trials uh, for, for every single nutritional query that we have, then all of the science is pretty much worthless. And, and I think what we do need to do is to take all of the science that we have in concert. So that means the observational studies that we have, large-scale observational studies, the randomized controlled trials in nutrition science, because they do exist. Also, the anecdotal evidence that, that we have, uh, just looking at human populations around the world through the ages, looking at how certain foods can affect our gut microbes, placing, placing nutrition science in an evolutionary context as well. When we take in all of that information in concert, we, we really do have a very compelling evidence-based story. And part of the problem with accepting that evidence-based story is that it just, it does take time uh, to, uh, to implement. It's not as easy as prescribing a pill. So, so it does take some struggle. You just mentioned Ansel Keys. That was one of the things on my list I wanted to talk about, Ansel Keys and his work. Can you briefly describe the work that he did? And then I want to take it a little further. Sure. So Ansel Keys was a nutrition science researcher, and he was a Minnesotan in the 1950s. He noticed that the folks coming into his lab, the Minnesotan uh, businessmen, had very high levels of blood cholesterol and very high levels of heart disease. Now, at the time, blood cholesterol, elevated blood cholesterol was an accepted risk factor for the development of heart disease. We didn't know so much about how food affected that risk. So Keyes wanted to find out what foods could possibly cause blood cholesterol to rise. And he was on sabbatical with his wife in uh, Naples, rural Naples in Italy. And he noticed that 
there was very little heart disease in Naples. And he noticed that the Neapolitan diet was so profoundly different from the American diet. Hmm. So we, so they weren't eating a lot of meat, eggs, dairy. Uh, they were eating a lot of whole grains, lots of fresh fruits, vegetables, spices, and herbs. And he really started thinking about how diet could potentially affect heart disease. And he launched a large-scale, massive uh, observational study called the Seven Countries Study that looked at diet and disease incidents around several European countries and then also Japan. And, and he found that the higher the level of saturated fats in, in one's diet, uh, the higher uh, the blood cholesterol and the higher the risk of heart disease. So saturated fat, it seemed, uh, could, could elevate blood cholesterol even more than cholesterol in the diet. But I think the seven country study was really not just about a single nutrient and its association with disease, but but something even more profound. Uh, this idea that diet could actually influence disease had the potential to in an era when most diseases were thought to be the consequences of aging. So, so I think um, a lot of what he did also was to bring this concept of the traditional Mediterranean diet to Americans. You know, this idea of whole grains and fresh fruits and vegetables and all of these different wonderful things he experienced in the Mediterranean to, to American cuisine. So we popularized that concept. Okay, this was around 70 years ago. Not too long ago, but long enough. And we have to give Ansel Keys a lot of credit for being able to do um, this massive study because getting information like that is difficult to coordinate, difficult to process, it's expensive. Absolutely. And it was just amazing what he was able to achieve. But at the same time, and you may be, you may or may not be aware of this, there are people today that talk about his work and criticize it and say that a lot of it isn't true and it was misinterpreted and misunderstood. And these people, in my opinion, don't understand what was done, don't understand the science, and don't realize that in the last 70 years, a lot more work has been done to reinforce a lot of the things that he came up with. Right. I think there are a lot of uh, revisionist histories that that have populated the online spaces, particularly since his death. And I think it's important to take his work not in isolation and not with this idea that there's this isolated study talking about saturated fats and the risk of heart disease, but what's the context in which this study was conducted and what is it actually trying to say? What's the big picture here? And 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 absolutely what research has been done since then? What, what have we what have we come to know since the time of Keys? And you know, we, we know so much more about food now than we did in the 1950s. The idea of the gut microbiome, you know, in, in, in the late 1990s and the early 21st century, research on the gut microbiome has just exploded, and we're learning so much about how food affects our microbes and how our microbes affect disease. And I think Ansel Keys' work has to be taken in that broad context. There was, it might have been a whole chapter, I don't remember, it was a while ago I read your book, but there were perceptions in the past and perceptions now about nutrients and our understanding of health and fat, as you just mentioned with Ansel Keys, saturated fat. One in particular, fat, some time ago, 
was seen as healthy and extra pounds you mentioned was also seen as a good thing and right. now we're we're perceiving something a little different yeah uh, you know so so now what we're seeing the the uh, fat that actually pads your thighs and your upper arms is actually not as harmful but it's really also the fat that that pads your belly uh, an mm. excess amount of fat that type of fat is is a marker for uh, visceral fat or the fat that wraps around your inner organs and even your blood vessels. And that type of fat is actually not inert. It's highly inflammatory. It actually functions like an immune organ, spewing out inflammatory markers at all hours of the day. So obesity is, is a problem that is increasing. And then the belly fat is something to be particularly cognizant of because that's the type of fat that's a marker for uh, the more insidious fat in your inner organs. Hmm. So people that accumulate fat maybe uniformly and it's not doesn't seem to really concentrate in their belly, they're better off somehow. I yeah. So so if you accumulate fat in uh, the buttocks or the thighs or the upper arms, and uh, generally you're you're uh, living a healthy lifestyle, you're eating while you're exercising, you're optimizing all of those other lifestyle factors. Uh, you you have a healthy uh, body mass index. Your blood sugars are under control. In in that scenario, the the excess kind of fat that pads the thighs, upper arms, etc. That type of fat is not as harmful as as the belly fat. Hmm. But again, it's 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 fascinating to see that at one point we thought fat was great, and now we know it's not so great. True, it's just like true. doctors used to recommend cigarette smoking, right? Yes, they did do that at one point, and they smoked in their offices. Uh, and it, it took a very long time, again, as as it is taking now with with food, to to state that cigarettes were not so good for us, and we shouldn't be promoting them. When I was reading your book, the storytelling really helps because you're covering a very complicated medical sub subject, and there's a lot of vocabulary. There's a lot of vocabulary that I just tended to just like. Okay, <laughs> I'm getting the gist of this, but I'm not having a test tomorrow, so I don't need to memorize all of this. But the vocabulary, they're really characters. They're really characters in, in another thrilling mystery, this history of our medical knowledge. You talked about um, microphages, microphages. I don't even know how to pronounce it, but now they're neutrophils. Mm -hmm. microphages and phagocytes and there were so many different words that scientists and doctors were coming up with and then we learned to call them something else or learned that it was something else but really they're fascinating characters yeah i i i agree i i and that was my intention you know to to sort of focus on some of these cells as I would focus on characters, because I, I felt like the language, this whole idea of, of language throughout the book was important, the language of how we talk about food, uh, the language of the immune system, you know, how food is processed in the body, um, how that affects the immune system is an entirely new language. And then also naming all of these different molecules was, was in some ways important to me, some of the interleukins, you know, uh, the cytokines, and also some of these immune cells, because that's that's kind of a language uh, another entirely separate language, you know, happening on a very microscopic level. And I, I particularly focus on certain types of immune cells, uh, uh, macrophages in particular. And those are one of the cells that Elie Metchnikoff uh, discovered and when he first formulated his theory of immunity. And in acute inflammation, you know, you can see a variety of immune cells like 
neutrophils, which rush to the area, and macrophages also play a part in chronic inflammation. You can see macrophages and uh, lymphocytes. But with the story of hidden inflammation, with this, this type of inflammation in particular, macrophages play a very central part in this type of inflammation. They play a central part in the interactions between food and the immune system, the germs in your gut. And that's why I, I tended to focus on those cells a bit more and really just take the reader through, through the story of how, how these cells are affected by all of those things. Another story I was interested to read about was about Kellogg. And I, I had known that Kellogg was interested in a vegetarian diet and was the founder of the, the food company and making cereals, but I had no idea there was a dark side to that story. Could you share that a little bit? The, yeah, so, so referring so Kellogg, to his brother, ultimately. his brother. Okay. Got it. His, so John Kellogg was, uh, was also another physician who, who's kind of saw things before his time. And in, in, in some ways he ran uh, the Battle Creek Sanitarium in, in, in Michigan. He was a Seventh-day Adventist and he was one of the first physicians to really tell folks that food played a part in health. And he did sometimes crazy things at the sanitarium uh, with, with medical treatments, uh, you know, that, that, that he prescribed. Yeah. Uh, typically, they were harmless, uh, equivalent to uh, the modern day colonics and such. But he he was someone who really focused on food as as therapy for disease. And he encouraged his, his patients and his followers to follow a diet that was very high in whole plant foods. And he came up with the forerunner of the modern day Kellogg's cornflakes. But what Kellogg created in, in his kitchen, uh, he created a very sort of puritanical form of cornflakes. They were wheat flakes, uh, no added sugar, no added salt. And, and he found that this actually relieved a lot of digestive problems in his patients. His brother, Will, uh, who was a less favored brother, uh, you know, his, his uh, parents always favored John. Will worked with John in, in the kitchen as well. And, and Will came upon the idea, you know, to, to actually use corn instead of wheat and to add lots of sugar and salt, specific portions of sugar and salt to those flakes. And, and Will created an incredibly tasty version of the initial flakes that John Kellogg had created. And that's what we know as cornflakes. Will became a billionaire, of course, uh, and then <laughs> Kellogg uh, kind of tumbled into obscurity. He actually, he actually became bankrupt towards the end of his, his life. I didn't know all of that story. I just knew about John Kellogg and creating the initial product. And I thought that's what went into Kellogg's. But with, I don't know. This is another thing that we see that happens where there's a product that's created that seems relatively good. And then capitalism comes along <laughs> and does whatever it can to make it faster and cheaper. And it turns out to be more damaging one way or another. Yeah. And also just, uh, uh, you know, trying to manipulate our instinctive tendencies to consume lots of salt, lots of sugar, lots of fat, lots of processed foods. And, and that theme has kind of played itself out over and over again, where processed food companies were some of the most profitable in the world. And, you know, it's, it's tougher to get folks to eat the original uh, bowl of Kellogg's cornflakes, you know, because it's, it's wheat, not too much sugar, salt, no, no added substances. And very easy to get folks to eat the modern day cornflakes, but but so that's where the struggle lies, and and uh, those companies profit enormously. Yeah, and then there's another product you talked about, Crisco, 
And I was so surprised when I realized it has been in the food supply for a hundred years, for about a hundred years. And it's such a bad product, but it seemed like a lovely product in the beginning. So pure and white. It did seem like a great product in the beginning. And I think also that was because of this brilliant marketing campaign uh, that, that the company had mounted. And, you know, the problem is, is that people were moving away from solid animal fats and Crisco presented a sort of pure alternative. And what, what, what uh, Crisco presents is to hydrogenate liquid vegetable oils to create kind of a solid fat. And it's very easy to use. It was great to use in baking. Uh, but this product created trans fats, which are very insidious fats that kind of weave themselves into our physiology and are highly inflammatory and tied to a higher risk of many chronic disorders. And, and we knew this for some time, uh, but it, it took some time to actually get this substance entirely out of the food supply to actually ban it. Yeah, I remember maybe some five years ago or something, it was banned. Yep. But there are still some products, I think, that might have a little bit of hydrogenated vegetable oils in them. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, they, they are cheaper to use uh, and very easy to use in processed foods. Yeah, and there's a sneaky way when you use a little or you use a certain amount and you make the serving size so small that it seems like there isn't any in there, but it's a ridiculous serving size. That's true. <laughs> then when you get the right serving size, you're getting a significant amount. Yep, these are all tricks that that uh, folks use for sure. Exactly, tricks. And one more trick, and then I want to get into some positive guidelines. But another is our government. And our government has not been entirely helpful over the decades providing accurate information about nutrition. Uh, and you've talked about this in your book and the dietary guidelines and how scientists and researchers come up with reasonable recommendations and then lobbyists come along and then the government kind of squirms and then doesn't give us the information we need. Yeah, and I think it's a pattern that's still playing out today. It's it's improved from the 1970s, but you know, still today it, it still happens because we have such powerful industrial forces in this country. When the dietary guidelines came out in 1977, Senator McGovern and his committee were simply trying to tell folks in very clear language to eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes. Uh, McGovern was very familiar with Ansel Keys's work as well. Mm. And so that was what they were trying to get people to do. Um, and then they were also trying to get folks to eat less meat, eggs, dairy products, and those simple statements were just intolerable for, for a, a lot of industrial interests. And, uh, and those statements did not make their way through. You know, the recommendations to decrease eggs and whole milk were, were dropped. The recommendation to decrease meat intake was instead transmuted to choose meats that will decrease saturated fat. And those are two very entirely different ways of looking at, at, at food and, you know, was much more confusing for people and kind of changed uh, how, how we talk about food in a lot of ways. Okay, so now let's really get to the meat of this subject. What is the recommendation? What is your recommendation for a healthy diet that keeps inflammation 
working when we need it and not going overboard. Sure. So I think one of uh, one of the most misunderstood things about the anti-inflammatory diet is that it has to be an exclusive diet, that it has to exclude gluten or grains or beans or nightshade vegetables. But all of these things uh, were rampant in the traditional Mediterranean diet, uh, the Neapolitan diet. And a true anti-inflammatory diet includes as many whole plant foods as you can possibly include. Mm. So when you look at the traditional Mediterranean diet, it's actually very, very high in plant foods with, um, you know, they did have some occasional animal products, but they were very, very minimal. So I would say keeping the diet with as many plant foods as you possibly can all the way up to hundred percent plant foods, if you're able to do that is, is the true anti-inflammatory diet. And this is also the kind of diet that can foster not only human health, but also planetary health. And I think when we talk about today, you know, just eating a majority of plant foods or eating a a, a, a lot of vegetables, et cetera, we're thinking about that's 51% is a majority, but we need to move beyond 51% and we need to get to 90%, 95, maybe a hundred percent plant mm. foods in our diets. And we know that the recommended daily amounts of fiber in this country, 95% uh, of Americans don't even meet those tiny recommendations. And that's for 25 grams for women and 38 grams for men. And we need to be eating way more fiber than that, but 95% of us don't even meet that recommendation. And fiber is one of our most anti-inflammatory nutrients. That being said, the people that aren't getting enough fiber and have problems with their gut, and then they want to change to a healthier diet, many of them suffer because they don't have the microbiome to digest the fiber and the new foods that they're eating. And this has been spun a bit by people, sometimes scientists, sometimes medical doctors who tell us that certain foods that are excellent for the diet that are causing havoc on these people that aren't healthy, that we shouldn't be eating those foods. So how do those people move from an unhealthy place to a healthy place? Absolutely. I think that's another very important point that you brought up. And I think the thing to keep in mind is that before excluding any plant food from your diet, the burden of proof that it actually harms your body must be so high. <laughs> and one, we know that when you're moving from the standard Western standard American diet to a high whole foods plant-based diet, that's a process that takes some time. It takes some time for your gut to adjust its secretions and its contractions. It takes time for you to grow the beneficial microbes in your gut that can process all of that fiber. So, so you do need to go slow with including all of that fiber in your diet. It can't be zero to a hundred overnight. And the other thing to keep in mind too, is that there are so many different things that could be going on inside of your body that, that may cause you to have reactions to certain foods. It doesn't mean that you will have to forever exclude that food. So for example, you can have food intolerances and sensitivities, and, and it's important to make a distinction between those things as well, because intolerances are due to sometimes like a lack of digestive enzymes, whereas sensitivities are more immune uh, mediated. So it's important to see your physician and figure out what else could be going on. Do you have bacterial overgrowth? Do you have food intolerances or sensitivities, mm -hmm. IBS? And get all of those problems addressed uh, before thinking, let's just get rid of all the bread in my life. Um, because <laughs> bread bread makes people happy, right? So <laughs> it's, 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 it's a good food and it's really more in how it's prepared 
than than um, you know because because the word bread can refer to so many different things. It can refer to a processed bagel or a donut, and it can refer to a great sourdough bread fermented in the ancient tradition. We find that when some of these foods are made in those ancient traditions, even people with wheat sensitivity can tolerate them so much better. It's funny. I was just in Europe a couple of months ago for about three weeks, and I don't normally eat bread. Bread's a treat. Sometimes I'll bake it, uh, but I don't eat a lot of bread. And we, we were eating a lot of bread in Europe mm -hmm. and it was fun, but it was good. People like bread. Yeah. 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 And they, and, and it's, it's funny because some of uh, the folks who have say uh, non-celiac wheat sensitivity will go to some of those European areas and, and tolerate those breads much, much more so than they would mm -hmm. uh, the processed wheat in the U.S. Yes. Well, here I go again. Are you a good bread or a bad bread? Because <laughs> <laughs> not all bread is the same. Exactly. Dr. Ravella, I want to know, what do you eat? I eat uh, a variety of things. And I, so one of the things um, that I do is I make a lot of soups. I make chili. I make some Indian food as well. One of the most basic things uh, that I make, and I make it in the Instapot, which is a huge time saver for, mm -hmm. for me, is is just something called a dal. It's it, it's a lentil uh, dish, and it's it's made with um, just uh, red lentils. Sometimes uh, green lentils is is how I make it, and and I just throw a bunch of ingredients into the instapot, and and I eat the dal with rice. Uh, so I eat lots of legumes. I, I think legumes are a cornerstone. Lots of whole grains. I try to focus more on uh, the intact whole grains as opposed to the processed. Um, I do allow myself to eat eat uh, healthy breads if, if I want. It's not a staple in my diet, but I eat, I, yes, I certainly eat, eat bread. Um, I eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Um, I try not to forget about spices. I think spices are very important. Uh, spices and mm. herbs in, in general uh, have kind of untapped potential. They're so easy to throw onto a dish and can remarkably enhance the anti-inflammatory quality of those dishes. Um, and so that's kind of in a nutshell what, what I eat. Okay. I have a question for you. I don't know that you'll have an answer. I know we're all individuals and we may respond differently to different foods like no one else does. I have been vegan for 34 years. I eat a lot. Of, I'm on a whole food plant diet. I eat a lot of fiber. I love beans, but occasionally, especially with lentils, and it's more the bigger lentil, the brown lentil, I will experience more gas than any other bean mm -hmm. and i don't know why that is is that just me and the brown lentil or is there if if you haven't eaten it in a while maybe the gut isn't ready for it do you have any ideas are you are, are you uh, soaking the lentils uh, before you cook them usually or well that's a good question because since i know that lentils give me a problem when mm -hmm. i think about it <laughs> i will soak them and i think that helps and most of the time i soak my beans it's just last week i didn't and we were in a hurry and i put them mm -hmm. in the instant pot and whoa the next two days <laughs> were a lot of yeah. fun yeah, sometimes when you have uh, new iterations of, of legumes that you haven't had in, in a long time or, or that you just never had, period, uh, you know, once you start eating more of a certain food, your gut does adapt. And then also food preparation techniques like soaking foods, pre-soaking grains and legumes before you cook them can help uh, with the tolerability in, in your gut as well. Yeah, it happens. I know variety is really important, so I always try and keep it interesting. 
but sometimes my gut sends me interesting messages. Okay, while we're on the subject of the gut, something that's relatively new was realizing that the gut and the brain are communicating. And you mentioned intuition earlier in the program. And I'm just wondering about intuition, the phrase, follow your gut, things that are going on inside of us, like a certain kind of intelligence or communication. I'm getting a little out there beyond Mm -hmm. what the medical establishment might, might want to acknowledge, but how do you feel about the gut and intuition? Well, I think I think in general the gut brain connection has been a fascinating area of, of study. You know, we we have almost a second brain in our gut. We have millions of nerve cells in our gut. We have tons of immune cells and also tons of nerve cells, and we have the gut microbiome. So there's this bi-directional sort of dialogue between the microbes in our gut and and our brain, our nerve cells, our immune cells, and there are signals kind of passing back and forth. So so when you when you think of you know if you're stressed out or if you have to give a big speech for example and you're anxious and and you can feel it in your gut some folks have diarrhea before before uh, their big speeches or stomach upset and at the same time when you have issues in your gut uh, you know you for example irritable bowel syndrome patients with mm. irritable bowel syndrome are more prone to things like depression and anxiety so there's this bi-directional communication uh, that is so fascinating between the gut and the brain. Uh, and I think we're still learning a lot more about it. And we're still learning a lot more about, is it the chicken or egg, which came first? Is this causation or association? Uh, but but it's, it's a very exciting area of study currently. I know many other books that are written by plant-based doctors and scientists. They often include testimonials from people who have followed their recommendations and have achieved rem- amazing results. And they're all happy ending, beautiful stories. And very often they're real. And there's so many incredible stories about people reversing diabetes in like 10 days, three weeks. It's just incredible and getting off Mm -hmm. their medication and people that have had all kinds of heart problems and reverse their symptoms and their health is better. And even with some cancers have been turned around, just really incredible stories with a healthy diet. And you give some stories in your book, but we don't really find out the ending with some of them. Was That's this intentional <laughs> or what, what what was what was your thinking yeah. there and your choices? Well I think well so first of all I think you know all of those stories that you mentioned are are great. And I think you know the whole foods plant-based diet absolutely has this immense potential not only to prevent but also in many cases to reverse disease and those testimonials are you know just absolutely fantastic um the cases i present in the book uh some of those cases are patients who who have advanced medical issues i present patients with organ transplants patients with short bowel syndrome where most of their guts are cut out a patient with an atypical autoimmune disorder and i wanted to show uh in these in these diseases how how modern medicine, you know, the potential of modern medicine uh, to alleviate some of these things. And we have amazing drugs and medical therapies and surgeries now. I and mean, we have this amazing potential to, to actually uh, help to heal the human body. But, but even in these contexts, diet and lifestyle plays an important role. So it's, it doesn't only play an important role in just 
preventing obesity, diabetes, heart disease, uh, cancers, and you know either uh, reversing those diseases in some cases as well as with diabetes, obesity, and heart disease. But it also plays an important role in how we can adapt to modern medical technology, because as we age, as modern medicine advances, you know many of us may have prosthetic joints. Uh, some of us may have organ transplants. Maybe we'll get to prosthetic organ transplants one day. And, and we are new mm. humans who will be comprised of new materials at, at some point, uh, should we live long enough and as medical technology advances. And I wanted to show, even in that context, how imperative it is to have this adjunctive treatment to, to care about what you eat and how you live your life, um, not only because you can adapt to uh, these modern medical advances, but also to the changing planet as well. One of the first stories was about your friend. You used a different, not his real name, Jay. And I don't want to talk about all the stories here. I want people to read the sure. book and read everything about it, but not to give things away, but is Jay okay? <laughs> I think I'll have to, I think I'll have to save that story, but I will, I will, um, certainly tell you off the record okay good <laughs> but because, it was you a, know you, we care about him yes well yeah. thank you for, for 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 caring about jay and and uh thank you for bringing up that story because that that was an inspiration for writing the book as well was was that story one of the inspirations okay i'm just curious you became a medical doctor you eat a whole food plant diet was your upbringing related in any of this journey that got to, to where you are today? Well, I, I grew up in a small Indiana town called Valparaiso, and uh, I, I ate uh, my mother's cooking whenever I, I, I was forced to because I had to eat healthy at home. And she and she cooked wonderful things, uh, plant-based foods. But I also grew up, uh, you know, surrounded by, by uh, fast food. And that was what uh, my friends and I would eat when we had a school holiday. And I also grew up in uh, the public school system. I went to public school until I was 18. And, and the traditional diet that they served in public schools in, in Indiana uh, was a very meat-heavy diet. It was, was filled with dairy and meat and eggs. Um, and I, I grew up with so many messages, uh, you know, just just uh, messages from industry, for example, on what kinds of foods we should be consuming. And and I ate, I ate uh, quite a lot of unhealthy things <laughs> during that time. You know, I would go to, to uh, the county fair and have, have cotton candy and lots of sugary things and, and sugar and salt and, and uh, uh, fats that we should not be eating in excess, just, just kind of saturated our foods. And, and, you know, we were very prone to eating in certain ways. Well, the, the amazing thing about the human body is how quickly it can be forgiving and jump back to excellent health when you start feeding it what it really needs. That's true. There, we are very resilient. Human yeah. bodies are amazingly resilient, and that's very true. Okay, one last question. I'm just curious about you and your work. You're at Columbia University, and you teach. And I'm curious about the university's thoughts on the the diet that you promote and your students' reactions to what you tell them regarding I diet? I think there are so many more uh, students and physicians now than there ever were in the past uh, who are interested in diet and who are interested in whole foods, plant-based medicine. And I think there's really been a movement that's been growing 
uh, you know, at least for the past couple of decades. And I know we've been talking about this, scientists have been talking about this for quite some time, but I do feel like uh, it's just, it's, it's become more and more in the public conscience also because of issues like climate change and pandemics, et cetera, and, 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 and this urgent pressing need to adapt to our environment, to, to eat a certain way, not only because we want to maintain our own, own health and prevent disease, but also maintain the health of the planet and of those we love. And I feel, I feel like uh, the university setting has definitely been a very positive one in, in which to promote these ideas. Well, I have enjoyed talking with you. I've enjoyed reading A Silent Fire and learning more about inflammation and history. So thank you for writing that. And thank you for talking with me today. Anything you want to add before I let you go? Thank you so much for having me today. It's been wonderful talking with you. And I hope that readers do find some value in the book and are able to advocate for their own health. Thank you. That was Dr. Shilpa Ravella, author of A Silent Fire. It's a different sort of book written by a medical doctor about a medical subject. You get lots of great scientific information, you get history, and you get some wonderful storytelling. It makes it all quite readable and enjoyable. In these last few minutes of today's program, I want to go over to ResponsibleEatingAndLiving.com. That's the nonprofit that I founded with my partner, Gary DiMattei, back in 2011. That's when we launched officially. We mentioned some weeks ago that we were blogging about our 25-day magical European tour. I have posted 15 of the 25 days. I hope you get a chance to check it out. Another thing we like to do at Responsible Eating and Living is cook and create recipes. And we continually post new recipes, share new recipes, update recipes. I'm always trying old recipes, updating them, improving them. If you've tried any of them, if you have any questions about them or suggestions, this is a community, and we are here for you, and I hope that you would share what you found about any of them. And the thing about recipes, in some ways it's an art, cooking. I believe everyone can cook and everyone can prepare wonderful, nutritious, delicious dishes. But recipes are not going to turn out exactly the same every time and in everyone's kitchens all around the world. Some of the challenges with baking, for example, depend on the flours you use. And you know, I'm kind of nutty about flours, no pun intended. <laughs> I've been grinding my own now for some time, and it definitely changes the way the flours respond in recipes. But baking and particularly flours depend on moisture and temperature. And depending on how fresh your grains are, when they were harvested, when they were distributed, when they were milled, if they were milled or if you were milling them, really changes how they're going to react in any dish. So I'm, I'm making a disclaimer of some sort saying that the quantities that are recommended in our recipes or in any recipe may not work for you based on the conditions in your particular home. Now, some people tend towards using weight measurements rather than volume measurements because weight measurements tend to be more exact. 
And I don't do that. I don't do that often. We have a scale we could measure, but I go towards volume. I'll admit it's easier for me. So that adds a level of inaccuracy. And if you wanted more precision, recipes with weight measurements might add that precision, but still the atmospheric pressure, the temperature, the humidity, all of that plays into what's going to happen when you bake. So if you are frustrated or if you have any problems, don't dismay, don't give up. Just get to know your environment. And if you've tried something and it hasn't worked out, I hope that you would email me at info at realmeals.org. I'd be delighted to get you more comfortable in your kitchen with the foods that you want to make. One of my goals has always been, aside from making everyone vegan, is for everyone to have the dishes that they love. And if that means making lots of substitutions from an original family recipe, traditional recipe that isn't vegan, and making it vegan, and making it as you remember it, I, I want to help with that. Now, I always add a few levels because that's just who I am. I like taking traditional recipes, not only making them vegan, but making them better, keeping them tasty and delicious, but accommodating a new level of taste based on your own knowledge of nutrition. I used to eat plenty of foods that were really oily or full of fat and salty and sugared, and I've changed my taste buds. I've recalibrated to appreciate foods that are naturally sweet and have natural flavors from herbs and spices and the freshness of the foods without having to add additional salt or maybe adding just a tiny little bit, far less than you find in most processed foods, industrial foods, restaurant foods, and recommended in recipes. And then when it comes to oil, I'm sure many of you have noticed if you have reduced the amount of oil and fat in your diet, when you eat something that is normal, I put air quotes around normal, you'll taste it. You'll taste that oil, oiliness. Now, some people still like it. I personally don't. So here I am creating recipes and kind of upgrading them as we go along. And one recent example, we created a recipe some years ago called an apricot danish. And Gary had a memory of the Acme Bakery in Berkeley, California, years ago. And they used to make all kinds of specialty items before they were a big, giant company that distributed all kinds of bread products to local stores and shipped things around. And they had this apricot danish that he remembered. He talked about it. We worked on it together, and we created this recipe. And we've only made it a few times, but it had a special place in my memory because there was something really lovely about it. The Danish part of it, the way we made it, was like a bread. It had a bready feel to it, not sweet. And the topping was made of apricots and sautéed and softened until they were nice and gooey. So I made it again. And this time I did some slight modifications. Originally, I added two tablespoons of oil into the bread dough. And I'm not sure why I did that back then, but I accidentally, and this is honest, I accidentally left it out. I just didn't see it. I skipped the line. And when I made it, it was fine. It was great. I didn't need it. So I removed it. I've also been playing with different flours. So I used the current real flour gluten-free mix, which is oat, millet, and garbanzo bean flours. 
I did add xanthan gum this time, and you probably know that I'm trying to leave out baking powder and baking soda and all kinds of things. I haven't tried it yet without xanthan gum, but I think the gum gives the texture that I'm looking for in this particular recipe. I'm going to try it again without, and I'll let you know how it goes, but right now it was pretty awesome. And as I upgrade or improve upon or just modify these recipes to my liking, I try to add tips in there with managing flowers, for example, and what to do if the flour is too sticky or if the flour is too dry so that you get the texture you need. I'm not saying this is an easy recipe. It's not hard, but it has some steps. It does take time. I think it could be fun to make with children, for example, because there's a part where you make the dough and you roll it and then you roll it into like a snail form and then you dip it in the nuts and cinnamon and that could be fun for kids to do. And it doesn't take very long. I'm just once again qualifying. If you're interested, I recommend trying this recipe, Apricot Danish, and it's at ResponsibleEatingAndLiving.com and I will link it to this podcast. But this is something we do and we offer all of this information for free, for you, for your friends, for your family, or for anyone you think would appreciate this information. I want to give a big thank you to those who have donated to Responsible Eating and Living. I know Gary and I put a shout out about our fundraiser, our end of the year fundraiser, and I'm very grateful for those who heard our call. And I will be continuing to talk about our little fundraising campaign until the end of the year. And if we have helped you in any way or given you some information or a recipe or a tip or anything that's been helpful to you, I hope you consider supporting us in any way that you can. If you go to responsibleeatingandliving.com, there's a donate tab. It's really easy. We welcome your support. In addition to this podcast that is produced by Responsibility in Living and the recipes that we offer and the articles and videos that we post on the website. We're also starting a new podcast in French. And this is a new challenge that comes with new difficulties and new costs. If you're interested in supporting a project that's reaching out beyond the United States to get people interested in a healthy, whole food, vegan diet. This might be something you want to support. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to my interview with Dr. Shilpa Ravella, the author of A Silent Fire. Thanks for listening to this podcast. It's all about food and for supporting responsible eating and living worldwide. I can't say thank you enough. Thank you for being there. It means so much. Have a delicious week, everybody. Thank you.